0: Most Americans hadn't been paying attention to the war in Afghanistan because it had been dragging on for so long. Then all of a sudden, before everyone's eyes, it was back in the news again. And you see the Taliban running around Kabul. And I think people were shocked and wanted to know how this had happened. —
1: Craig Whitlock knows how it happened. Two years ago, with the help of a team at The Post, he published a project called The Afghanistan Papers. He uncovered hundreds of secret interviews with officials in the government and the military who ran the war. And they admitted in private what they never said in public, that things in Afghanistan were going very badly.
0: These weaknesses, these warning signs were there all along with the Afghan government and with the Afghan army and police, uh, that the flaws in their training, the lack of morale... Uh, the gathering strength of the Taliban. You know, certainly these problems were known with the Afghan government and, you know, they came to
1: pass. Today, what we can learn by revisiting the Afghanistan papers. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August
2: 20th. Let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home.
1: Today, President Biden spoke about the evacuations in Afghanistan. He talked about how he's going to get Americans out of the country and how he's gonna try to get as many Afghans out as possible.
2: Make no mistake, this evacuation mission is dangerous. It involves risks to our armed forces and it's being conducted under difficult circumstances. I cannot promise what the final outcome will be or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. But as commander in chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary.
1: When Kabul fell, one of the first people I thought of was Craig. Because two years ago, we talked to him on Post Reports about the Afghanistan papers and about all the things that were going wrong with the war behind the scenes. Today, we are going to re-air that episode in its entirety. But before we get there, we're checking in with Craig again. This month, he's publishing a book that dives even deeper into what went wrong. It's also called The Afghanistan Papers. For him, watching the events of the past week has been heartbreaking. And it also confirms a lot of what he's been saying for the past two years.
0: Well, I'll be honest, on that part, I feel vindicated. You know, when we first published The Afghanistan Papers, it it did grab people's attention. But there was also an element of people in the U.S. government, including General Milley, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military officer in the United States, you know, people have pushed back and said, no, we told the truth. We weren't deceptive. Yes, things are going in the right direction. We've been making progress. Well, you know, all those refrains over the years about from U.S. officials that they were going to win the war, that victory was around the corner, or that they were making progress, you know, all that looks pretty hollow now. And I think that does vindicate are reporting from the original publication of the Afghanistan papers.
1: One question that I think so many of us have been asking this week is, why was the U.S. government taken so off guard by how quickly the Taliban were able to seize control of Afghanistan? And I'm wondering what your reporting does to answer that question of, of how the U.S. was taken so off guard.
0: Well, that is a good question, because if, if you look back over the years, I think something that's clearly become apparent now is that the U United States and US officials, we really only had a superficial understanding of Afghanistan, of the society, of the politics, of the history. And this is something that people who are interviewed for the Afghanistan paper said time after time. They said, you know, we just don't under we have a fundamental ignorance of Afghanistan. We don't understand how the country works. You know, we're foreigners from halfway around the world with no history here. We have very few people who speak the language. Uh, even though the United States had been there for 20 years, the military, most people, troops and diplomats, they would cycle in for six or nine or 12 months at a time. Then they'd go home. Then a new group would come in who didn't have any experience there. So we never figured the country out. So for the U.S. government to get caught by surprise by what happened, I just, I don't think they ever understood or had their their finger to the pulse of Afghanistan or Maybe they thought they did and were a little arrogant about it. And yet, you know, clearly underneath, maybe if they had talked to more regular Afghans, uh, people who weren't telling them what they just wanted to hear, you know, maybe they would have seen this coming a little earlier.
1: We've also heard from President Biden and from many U.S. officials that they were really surprised by the wholesale collapse of the Afghan security forces. Do you think that they should have been surprised by that?
0: no not at all i mean all the warning signs were there and have been for years i mean as we reported from the get go this whole project to train and equip an afghan army and afghan police force from scratch was beset from problem with problems from the get go uh we tried to fashion this very large afghan army and police force into a military that was structured in a way that was a mirror image of the us army uh, and the us air force and You know, this just didn't adapt well to Afghan culture, to the recruits. And, you know, we were just trying to impose this Western vision of the military on Afghanistan. Beyond that, there were just so many problems trying to train the Afghan army and police over the years. The illiteracy rates were sky high. More than 90% of recruits couldn't read or write. The Afghanistan papers have interviews with trainers who said many of the recruits couldn't even count. And so, of course, this was enormously difficult to train them in basic military procedures and operations. It's also been clear for 15 years that while many Afghan soldiers and police did fight bravely and serve their country, and more than 60,000 of them have been killed in the war. They've paid a terrible price, but, you know, their government didn't take care of them. You know, the Afghan government was horribly corrupt the Afghan military commanders and particularly the police commanders would steal salaries from their soldiers and police. They would shake down civilians. So who wants to fight for those guys? Who, who wants to be, show allegiance to a government like that? So I think in the end, even though many Afghans did fight and tried to serve a cause, who wants to put their life on the line for that kind of thing?
1: But if, as you're saying, these were conversations that were happening behind the scenes with military leaders talking about the lack of training, the corruption, uh, illiteracy, infighting, all these problems within the Afghan security forces that made them question whether they were really reliable, then why wasn't the government more honest about that? Or why did they conduct this withdrawal in a way that explicitly relied on the Afghan security forces?
0: Well, I think there's two good questions there, Martin. One is, you know, why didn't they fess up? Why didn't they tell the truth about what was re- really going on? And I think that gets a question of human nature. Nobody wants to admit when things aren't working out. But you have to remember when this war started, it had enormous popular support. Back in 2001, uh, you know, 80 or 90% of Americans supported the idea of sending troops to Afghanistan in revenge for September 11th and to fight Al-Qaeda so there wouldn't be another attack. It was a very popular war and and Americans thought they had it won in 2001 and 2002. They thought it was a successful mission. But over time, uh, things started to go badly. And what American president, what American general wants to admit that he or she was losing a war on their watch? Nobody wants to admit that because of the political price they'd have to pay. So I think That's part of the reason why they wouldn't admit the problems. The other reason why would they rely on an Afghan security force like that when they're trying to leave, I don't think they had any illusions that the Afghan army and police were going to prop up the Afghan government for very long. They just thought they might have a few months, maybe a year before the Taliban would take over. But they sort of thought... Well, that gives us a space of a few months between the time we leave and by the time the Taliban takes over. And Mm -hmm. the Biden administration was okay with that. I think if you look back, U.S. presidents have been trying to tear off this Band-Aid of the war in Afghanistan for for several years. President Obama tried to end the war. He promised he'd pull out all troops by the end of his second term. Uh, He was unable to do that. He had to keep U.S. troops here because of this very reason. They were just afraid the Afghan government would collapse without... US military there. And same with Donald Trump. He tried to end the war, but his generals persuaded him you have to keep a few troops there because otherwise the Afghan government might collapse and you don't want to take responsibility for that. So it was finally Joe Biden was the one who said, well, I don't care. I'm going to take the risk here, but I think we need to pull out once and for all. Otherwise we'll just stay there forever. That's what he said. So you can certainly, it looks ugly now, But this was a fear that U.S. officials have had for a number of years.
1: I think a lot of people who saw President Biden's speech on Monday saw different things, depending on how they feel about the war in Afghanistan. I think some people felt like they saw a sense of honesty from the president, basically acknowledging, look, Our presence there was in many ways a failure, and we just need to accept that and we just need to get a move on with the process of getting out of there because we're not going to help even if we stay longer. But I think a lot of people also saw a sense of unwillingness to acknowledge the shortcomings and how this withdrawal has been executed. The fact that you have these horrible images of people trying to clamber onto a plane to save their own lives, this really visceral sense that people are being abandoned. Do you feel like you are seeing from Biden an honesty that has been missing before? Or do you feel like there continues to be a lack of transparency around talking about the shortcomings and how the U.S. executes its role in Afghanistan?
0: The short answer, I think, is both. I think he's, on one hand, being more honest. He's being more honest that really not much has been accomplished in Afghanistan from the American perspective in the last 10 years. Uh, The last time there was a real achievement in the war was in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed and that happened in Pakistan. You know, as Biden has said, what do we have to show for the last 10 years since bin Laden was killed? And the answer is not very much. At the same time, I don't think Biden is being very transparent or forthright about what's going on there now and whether or not the U S government was sufficiently prepared for the chaos that has unfolded. You know, of course he says they were prepared, they expected it, but, You know, that's kind of hard to square with his statements in the past. So on that count, I don't think he's being very honest or truthful about it.
1: So Craig, we are now going to re-air our original episode on the Afghanistan Papers, which focuses on the spin and lies from the U.S. government and the military during the whole course of the war. After the events of last week... How do you think that this story might hit listeners a little differently?
0: I think people are going to be very angry. I've already sensed this anger when people read our original coverage and when they are starting to read the Afghanistan Papers book. People are angry when they go back and they read and hear all the promises that were made, all the statements about how we're making progress, we're going to win. Uh, We've already seen that up and down the political spectrum. People on the left, people on the right, people in the middle, they feel let down by their government and lied to. And I think seeing a reminder of all that, all the times, all the statements, all the comments, all the quotes from the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, it doesn't make you feel very good and there's a lot of anger out there.
1: After the break, we revisit our episode from December of 2019 on the Afghanistan Papers. We'll be right back.
0: I covered the Pentagon for several years as a beat reporter, and I was a foreign correspondent before that. I would go to Afghanistan sometimes. And one thing you would always hear commanding generals say is we're making progress or we're turning the corner.
2: The past eight months have seen important but hard-fought progress in Afghanistan. Since I spoke to you almost 16 months ago, we have made much progress.
0: 2011 was a real turning point.
3: But we are at a crucial turning point. I think
4: it's possible that by the end of this year, we will have turned the corner.
0: This would happen month after month, year after year,
4: now last night I gave a, a speech in which I said that we have turned a corner.
2: So I wouldn't suggest to you that we have turned the corner, but I will say we, we've come a long way since 03.
0: You never hear the commanding general say, we're losing.
2: First let
5: me just say that uh, we're not losing a war out here by any means.
0: Or the war is not going well.
5: I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress.
0: I think we have turned the corner. And I think also that the Taliban recognized that that corner has been
2: turned. Are you telling me that the corner has been turned? Yes. Turn the corner. Now, looking ahead to 2018, as
0: President Ghani said, he believes we have turned the corner, and I agree. Some lawmakers, like Senator Warren, noted this.
6: General Miller, we supposedly turned the corner so many times that it seems now we're going in circles.
1: Since the start of the war, that has been the official line from the government. But now... Craig has obtained a collection of secret recordings and documents that completely unravels that official narrative.
5: My assessments weren't good. It wasn't things are going well. Never, ever. We are participating in conflict. We are not really here to win.
1: Thousands of pages, documents, and recordings like these, laying out in private what was never said in public.
0: They really do bring to mind the Pentagon Papers, which were the Defense Department's top-secret history of the Vietnam War.
5: To me, this is kind of like the Vietnam effect. After 15 years and counting in Afghanistan, I don't think
4: we're any better organized than we were back then.
0: In these interviews, we hear from ambassadors and generals and senior diplomats, people like Michael Flynn and Ryan Crocker and Nicholas Burns, who said this war was a mess. And
3: after...
4: O three four. once we're fully engaged in both wars, I can't remember us ever saying, should we be
0: there? Are we being useful? Are we succeeding?
5: The just severity of corruption in our own system, I think, is just unbelievable.
0: And our strategy failed, and we didn't know what we were doing. They literally used those words. While on one hand, it makes sense, because people have known the war hasn't been going well, which is why we've been there for 18 years, to hear or read these people who are in charge of the war admitting how the war was screwed up and that what the American people were being told about the wars wasn't true.
1: And just for context— What has been the toll of the war for the U.S. and for Afghanistan? And just how much is that at odds with what we've heard publicly about the war?
0: It's hard to put enough superlatives into it. It started in October of 2001, just about a month after the 9-11 attacks. Good afternoon.
2: On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan.
0: And ever since, we've had U.S. troops there and U.S. forces. And the number of people going in and out has varied. It dwindled under Obama.
4: We will be able to remove 10,000 of our troops from Afghanistan by the end of this year.
2: The consequences of a
3: rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable.
0: It's gone back up under Trump to now about 13,000 troops, but the intensity of the war is in some ways as great as it's ever been. The number of US bombings and airstrikes uh, recently is as high as it ever was during the Obama administration. The number of Afghans who are dying in the war is as high as it's ever been. We don't have precise numbers from the death toll, but certainly estimates are that the number of Afghans who have been killed are over 140,000 over the course of the war, and that would include Afghan civilians, Afghan security forces, and also Afghan opposition fighters, like in the Taliban. From the United States, 2,300 U.S. troops have been killed in Afghanistan. The war is still going very strong, even if the number of U.S. troops is fewer than it once was. All told, we've spent about a trillion dollars on this war in Afghanistan for military operations, reconstruction, humanitarian aid has been going on so long, it's almost hard to add them all up.
1: And these documents and recordings, where are they from and how exactly were we aware that they existed?
0: So there's an agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. The, the acronym is SIGAR. Congress set them up over a decade ago to investigate waste and fraud and audits about spending in Afghanistan. But back in 2014, they decided to do a side project. The war had been going on a while, but at that point, President Obama had said the war was winding down.
4: Good afternoon, everybody. Today, I'd like to update the American people on the way forward in Afghanistan and how this year we will bring America's longest war to a responsible end.
0: So they wanted to do a project that they called Lessons Learned, that if the U.S. ever found itself engaged in another war, where it had to rebuild a country that had been shattered by war, what lessons were learned from this long, drawn-out conflict in Afghanistan that they could apply to other failed states?
4: I think Americans have learned that it's harder to end wars than it is to begin them.
0: So they started out interviewing people who have been involved in the war.
6: So if if we could start actually... um just to give you a sense, we have done, uh, at least for our project, probably I'd say maybe 120 interviews so far, and maybe more. Actually, at this stage,
0: they conducted and interviews.
6: If we could
2: begin, I guess
0: with hundreds of people we who were insiders or key figures in the Afghan War. I
2: was
4: appointed ambassador to NATO. I was just asked to go out and get the embassy open.
0: I spent
5: three years hunting human beings to kill them or capture them.
0: They were looking at some particular themes like strategy, corruption, things like that. They were going to get people in their own words about what went wrong, what got screwed up.
1: And how long did it take to actually get a hold of them?
0: Well, it took three years. So we started asking for them. There's a little bit of a backstory. Uh, In August of 2016, we'd heard that one of the people they interviewed was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, and at that like, time...
1: Like the Michael Flynn. The
0: Michael Flynn. At that time, he was, this was during the presidential campaign between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And Michael Flynn, just a couple months after he had gone up on stage at the Republican convention and said, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton.
2: We do not
5: need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. Lock her up. That's right. Yes, that's right. Lock her up.
0: we had heard he had given this long interview about the Afghan war. Flynn has some political baggage these days, but, but you have to understand, he was as plugged in on military intelligence as anyone in the armed forces for 15 years. He was in charge of military intelligence in Afghanistan when he served there. He was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. We wanted to know, what did he say? So we asked this agency, the Inspector General, well, we, we heard you did an interview with Flynn. It had never come out in public. We just heard about it. We'd like to get our hands on that and see what he said. And at first, the agency said, sure, we, that shouldn't be a problem. But then it dragged out and dragged out, and they finally said no. Long story short, we had to sue them for it in federal court under the Freedom Information Act. We ultimately won. At that point, we'd asked for all their interviews as we found out there were hundreds more and we thought, oh, well, we won in federal court. We'll we'll get the other ones. But they still refused to give us the other ones. So we had to sue them again. <laughs> then the, the next trick they did is they withheld most of the names of the people who were interviewed, which we thought was really important. So we're still in a fight in court over identifying who all these people were. But we've been able to figure out a lot of them.
1: So what was your reaction when you started to hear what had been discussed in these interviews?
0: Well, the first— One we got was Michael Flynn, you know, after our first lawsuit. So we had a transcript of what he said, and we had his audio recording of what he said.
5: And I'll I'll draw you a picture here. So we started the war, and strategically we focused on where. Where did they come from? Okay, well, they came from Afghanistan, okay? So let's go to Afghanistan. And then we, of course... We went to where, called Iraq. And it was like, okay, why do we go to Iraq, you know? Why? We haven't really answered why. So I'm trying to answer why in my own head. Why do they hate us? Why did they attack us? Trying to address why. To look backwards as to where. Politically, we are still arguing about Why?
0: You know, Flynn's a pretty colorful character. He's very blunt and direct, and he was harshly critical of the war.
5: So when you look at Afghanistan, every single measurable activity is failing. If John Campbell were to sit here today and go, Mike, it's bullshit.
0: John Campbell at this time is a commander of U.S. forces in the war.
5: We've built more schools. We've got more kids and, you know, we've got more cars on the road. You know, really?
0: Flynn knew intimately well what was going on in Afghanistan. So for him to say that what the public was being told about how well the war was going was completely at odds with the reality on the ground for year after year, that really got our attention.
1: And that takeaway, was that reflected in the other interviews and the other recordings that you've seen?
0: Yes. So that's the pattern. That's the theme throughout. There's nobody in these interviews commenting about how great the war has been going.
1: So let's dive a little bit more into the contents of some of these interviews. And I want to talk about Ryan Crocker.
6: And what we're trying to do, if, if we can, um, is to work with um, particularly senior level officials like yourself to make sure that um, the conversation's on the record wherever and whenever possible. Does that work for you? Uh, yeah, there's not much point in doing this if it's not on the record. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so maybe I
1: should start. Who is he and... Why is his point of view on the war in Afghanistan important?
0: So Ryan Crocker is, not only was he the ambassador there uh, for over a year during the Obama administration, at the height of the troop surge, when Obama was sending in tens of thousands more troops. Ryan Crocker was also the top-ranking diplomat in early 2002 after we started the war. Well,
4: I, I was parachuted in. I was not a South Asian a specialist by any means. I was just asked to go out and- get the embassy open, so I had no real background in
0: Afghanistan. We didn't have very many diplomats with a background in Afghanistan, or military people, or aid workers, because after the Soviets invaded 1979...
3: On the night of the coup, the Russians moved a large force of armored vehicles out to the president's isolated palace. The Afghan defenders and the Russian attackers fought bitterly for almost four hours.
0: We had to pull out our presence for the large part in Afghanistan. So from 1979 until 2001, in terms of United States or American knowledge of what was going on in Afghanistan, those are really the dark ages. Then suddenly after 9-11, and after we started bombing Afghanistan in October 2001, there is a real need to find people who can not only serve there, but can get up to speed really quickly. So most of the people who went in, like Crocker, one of the first diplomats, essentially parachuted in to this shattered country.
6: What did you find when you when you arrived? Absolute devastation. Coming into the city, driving around the city for the first
4: time, um, and driving through mile after mile of uh, basically lifeless mud.
0: Nothing worked. There was no plumbing. The roads were bombed.
4: Me of pictures of Berlin in 1945. Mm.
0: There was very little that was intact.
4: No military, no police, no civil service, no functioning society. So the enormity of the task uh, hit me.
1: And what did he say about how the U.S. was doing in terms of trying to help? build back some of Kabul and some of Afghanistan.
0: Well, there was a real debate going on in the Bush administration at that point. Do we get involved in nation building in in Afghanistan, or do we leave that to other countries or the United Nations?
4: Well, at that point, we didn't know what the task was, what the U.S. was there to do. There was significant differences in view in Washington as to whether we should embark on a long-term nation-building effort, or whether we wanted to keep our
0: role and our agenda very minimal. When George W. Bush had run for president in 2000 against Al Gore, one of his campaign themes was...
2: I don't think our troops ought to be used for what's called nation-building. I think our, na- our troops ought to be used to fight and win war. I think our troops ought to be used to, to help overthrow a dictator that's in our, it is in, when it's in our best interests.
0: They had seen what the Clinton administration had tried to do in Somalia and Haiti.
2: Somalia Start off as a humanitarian mission and then changed into a nation-building mission, and that's where the mission went wrong. And same with Haiti, I wouldn't have supported either. But I'm gonna be judicious as to how to use the military. It needs to be in our vital interest, the mission needs to be clear, and the exit strategy obvious.
0: So sure enough, right after Bush gets elected, he's faced with his choice now. What do I do in Afghanistan? They toppled the Taliban. They chased Al-Qaeda away. What responsibility do we have to rebuild Afghanistan? And this was a debate that Crocker talks about.
5: We sure saw Rumsfeld at work saying, minimal, minimal, minimal. Our job is about killing bad guys. So we will have killed the bad guys. Who cares what happens next? That's their problem. And if in a decade and a half we have to go in and kill more bad guys, we can do that too. But we're not going to get involved in nation building.
0: So Ryan Crocker says they were slow to come to that realization, that they needed to take a key role in the Reconstruction.
1: But that lack of initial widespread agreement about what exactly their role was in Reconstruction, how did that become apparent on the ground in Afghanistan?
0: Well, for one, they just we, all of a sudden we had U.S. troops there and diplomats and they had to function, you know, they had to try and get an embassy up and operating. You know, really they were left with a shell of a building that they had occupied 20 some years before. How do they get from one part of the country to another? other? There, there's no highways, there's old goat paths and dirt roads.
4: Uh, having to ford, you know, a, a river because the bridge was out, it, it was a very sobering experience that there was almost literally nothing there.
0: How do they get this country to, you can fly in and fly out? That took a long time. Just to do anything in terms of military operations, they needed to get some basic infrastructure up and going.
1: You mentioned that one theme that came up in many of these interviews is the fact that people were really concerned about the corruption that they saw. Was that something that that Crocker talked about during his interview?
0: Yes, Crocker was a key player in trying to determine how to respond to that, particularly during his second stint there in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul during the Obama administration. By then, the levels of corruption had gotten very, very bad in Afghanistan.
4: You've got a very significant military presence. Uh, It requires a whole lot of stuff.
0: You have to remember, at that point, we're pumping, the United States is pumping in billions and billions of dollars a year into Afghanistan, whether it's direct aid, paying for their troops and police, paying to rebuild roads. You just cannot put those amounts of money into a
4: very fragile state and society um, and not have it fuel
0: corruption. So it it really ran the gamut, the corruption. It could be Afghan police having checkpoints on the road, demanding money for someone to pass, whether you're an Afghan farmer or somebody going to school. But it also was very high-level corruption in terms of one of the biggest banks in Afghanistan, Kabul Bank, went belly up.
1: Panicked customers have been pulling their savings out of Kabul Bank as
2: fast as they can.
0: You have to understand, Afghanistan, when we invaded, they didn't have banks. They just had money exchanges, Hawalas, which are the Islamic financial system of these money transfers. But they build up a bank, and the brother of Hamid Karzai, Hamid Karzai is the president of Afghanistan. One of his brothers helped run this bank, Kabul Bank. It was the biggest private bank in the country. This bank also was a repository, directly or indirectly, of most of the U.S. and international aid. All this money, to a large degree, was getting funneled through Kabul Bank. And it became apparent in 2010 that Kabul Bank all of a sudden was on the verge of collapse, that there were rumors flying that they didn't have enough money to cover their loans.
1: Because it was so mismanaged and because was, people it, were theoretically taking money out of the yeah, business for I, well, their own. It wasn't,
0: mismanaged doesn't even cover it. <laughs> that this is people giving loans to themselves, millions and millions and millions of dollars in loans and never having to pay them back. So mm. I think The investigators who were looking into it would say it was more than mismanagement. It was outright theft and fraud to such a degree that it was run like a a Ponzi scheme. Former President Hamid Karzai, his brother Mahmoud Karzai, he's denied any criminal or personal wrongdoing, although, of course, he acknowledges, given that the bank almost melted down, that there were a number of very serious management issues at the bank.
1: So this was the kind of thing that Ryan Crocker was looking at and saying that...
0: As, As the chief U.S. diplomat, in Afghanistan. He's confronted with this problem. Do we hold anyone accountable? You know, by the time
4: I had left, I mean, it was, it was fairly clear to me that given the entrenched nature of corruption and the extent to which the establishment, including Karzai's own family famously, as, as well as uh, Fahim Khan, was highly unlikely that steps would be taken to bring
0: people to account. So Ryan Crocker says, essentially, though, his feeling was that the corruption was so bad and so ingrained in the government and the Afghan elite that there, was, there wasn't much he or the United States could do about it. The
4: endemic and deeply rooted nature of corruption, whether it's Kabul Bank or, or anything else, uh, is, is now beyond um, uh, the ability of uh, even a, a determined Afghan president uh, uh, to correct...
0: This was an unresolved problem that persists to this day, really. And Crocker's argument is, yes, they were corrupt. It was a mess. But by that point, it had become so ingrained, I don't think there was realistically much we could do about it. Now, a lot of other people disagree with him on that.
1: What are some of the other examples of corruption that Crocker noticed and was trying to deal with?
0: Well, one person he mentioned and came up in his recording was a notorious Afghan warlord called uh, Muhammad Qasim Fahim Khan. He was a Tajik warlord who was one of our allies when we invaded Afghanistan in 2001. You have to remember when we started bombing the country in 2001, our allies were warlords for the most part, people who were opposed to the Taliban, and they were on our side, only because they opposed the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But he was also a pretty rough figure in Afghanistan. This is a guy who had his own militia and suddenly found himself as the defense minister and vice president of Afghanistan. He's not a clean figure known for good government. This is a guy known for being pretty rough on his enemies. Crocker had talked about first meeting Fahim Khan.
4: Yeah, I met... Uh Uh, Fahim Khan my first time
0: out. uh, And at that point he knew Fahim Khan was this militia leader. He was a warlord from the northern part of Afghanistan. He was going to be in charge of the Afghanistan Defense Ministry.
4: Not surprisingly the early 2002 the charters got all messed up. You had Stranded at the airport in bitterly cold temperatures for hours, if not days, there was a minister of civil aviation who was supposed to be in charge of all of this. And um, one night, John McCall, the British force commander, and I were meeting with Karzai fairly late, and uh, Fahim Khan walked into the room. He was he was giggling, and he proceeded to relate to us that a mob had gotten out of control at the airport and had murdered the Minister of Civil Aviation. And he he giggled while he related this. Much later, it uh, emerged, I don't know if it was ever verified or not, it emerged that Afim Khan himself had had the minister killed. But I certainly came out of those opening months with the feeling that even by Afghan standards, I was in the presence of a
0: totally evil person. The substance of this is that the United States had to work very, very closely with Fahim Khan for many years. He died in 2015, I believe it was. And later in his recording, Crocker is almost joking with the interviewer.
6: You know, the good thing about Fahim Khan is that he is dead. (laughs) Yeah, and and,
4: uh, I I check about every other day, and as far as I know, he's still
0: dead. But again, the perspective isn't just that he was this scary, evil character, but this is one of our closest allies in Afghanistan. You know, the question in the war for them is, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And in these interviews, the documents and recordings, people repeatedly say this. They say, I couldn't tell who the good guys were or the bad guys. The troops would go over and say, show me where the bad guys are so I could fight them. And this was unclear. A lot of times the bad guys were on our side. That is the question, the debate that's still going on to this day and is reflected in these interviews and documents and recordings, that there is real disagreement among U.S. officials as to where to draw that line. Do we just take them aside and have a stern talking tune and tell them not to do it again? Do we demand they be kicked out of government? Do we arrest them? Like Michael Flynn, for instance, had a very different perspective from Crocker on what to do about Fahim Khan. But
6: I mean, that would have meant Confronting people like Fahim and Bismillah Khan. Yeah, that's right. And when that when that happened, you, you may remember this, right? You know, there was an attempt to confront uh, Fahim's crew. Yeah, gr- group of Air Force generals. Right. Um, and I think you may remember how that turned out. I was in his office, and and
5: it was not pretty. And and you know, but you know what? Arrest the guy. This is a combat zone. Mm-hmm.
1: So Flynn was one of those people who was saying that he felt the U.S. should have been more aggressive in trying to keep people in line or to dole out punishments to people who they felt were doing, doing bad things, being corrupt.
0: Flynn would say, yes, we didn't hold people accountable enough high up in the Afghan government.
5: I mean, there's a lot of guys that should have been arrested. You know, you've got to have accountability. And so if that, if that, that's part of the problem of instilling confidence in a population that they see it happening right in front of their eyes. We see it happening. And, and we, we don't uh, look the other way. We actually enable it, okay? I'll give you a good story of uh, probably one of the wealthiest people in Afghanistan today. He started out as a young interpreter.
0: Flynn tells a story of an interpreter who was working with U.S. military. He also calls him a Terp for short.
5: Talk about lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. So the military, this commander is using this turp and commander says, I need this. So this guy he's talking to, who's an Afghan, doesn't understand anything, tells the turp. You know, and the guy says, he says, I'll buy it from you. And the turp says, okay, he wants to buy it from you. Are you willing to sell it? He goes, yes, this is what I'll sell it for. And he says, well, how much does he want to sell it to me for? And the turp says, talk to the guy. Guy says a couple hundred dollars. Turp says twenty thousand. So he says, okay, no problem. Gives the guy a couple hundred bucks, and the Turk takes the rest
0: of it. You have to remember that the U.S. military and the State Department and most of the international aid organizations, they couldn't speak the two languages of Afghanistan. The two national languages are Dari and Pashto.
5: Even today, we're still in Afghanistan. You fought, you go tell me how many. How many actual U.S. members of our military, U.S. members of the military, or policy? Yeah. Any any people from the state that actually speak Dari or Pashtu? It's a handful. Yeah. So that's a shame. That's a policy decision. Mm-hmm.
0: So we're really dependent on translators and interpreters to help us communicate, but also figure out the lay of the land. This was a common... you'd see, as as a reporter there, I would see this happen, where the U.S. military would be dependent on an interpreter and sort of operate on the assumption that the interpreter is seeing their best interests, when, in fact, Flynn is saying that the interpreter is jacking up the price unbeknownst to the Americans.
5: He keeps doing that and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And the money's more and more. And he's cutting deals. Everybody loves this interpreter.
4: Mm -hmm.
5: Everybody thinks the world of him.
0: He would see these interpreters become multimillionaires over time.
5: Probably one of the wealthiest people in Afghanistan today. He owns a couple of banks. He owns a rental an SUV service. He started out as a young interpreter.
0: He says this was clear this was going on, but again, the United States just kind of let it happen instead of trying to crack down on it.
5: So I just, I just think that, you know, how many others of him are there? Tons, probably. Tons. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's there's probably hundreds yeah. of those types of individuals who benefited because, frankly, we didn't know what the hell we were doing.
0: We're not exactly sure who the interpreter is that General Flynn is referring to. If he identified the person in his interview with Cigar, that section was redacted by the inspector general for privacy reasons.
1: So then if all of this stuff was happening on the ground in Afghanistan, why couldn't U.S. officials be more public about that? And what did Michael Flynn say about the fact that the state of things on the ground was pretty bad, and yet we were hearing this message of things are improving, Afghanistan is getting better with every passing day?
0: Well, if they admit things are screwed up, then there would be public pressure to pull out or end the war. Nobody wanted to admit defeat. And so this was a problem you saw in Vietnam, too. This isn't the first time in a war this has happened. This is, really has strong echoes of what happened during the Vietnam War, where the military commanders or presidents or secretaries of state would say, well, it's a tough road. There's still fighting going on, but we're making progress. We're making progress. Because you know, they don't want people to think that people are dying in vain or that we're sending more troops or money to Afghanistan if it's a wasted cause.
5: Commanders and policymakers on the spectrum of news, they want to be always good news. Operational commanders and State Department policymakers or Department of Defense policymakers, they are going to be inherently rosy in their assessments and be unaccepting of hard-hitting intelligence.
0: And... Yet Flynn is saying that it was clear on the ground that we were losing, we were not winning, that despite what the American people were being told publicly, things were not going well.
5: After, I think, 2006, for me, it was irrelevant because we, we, we were just killing so many people and it wasn't making any difference at all.
0: It's hard for a military commander to admit things aren't going well to say we screwed up or we made a mistake or our strategy was flawed. None of them are geared to say that and nobody would admit the reality of what was going on. And that's what's so striking about what Michael Flynn and other people say in these recordings and interviews. they say, it was apparent we were losing. It was apparent things weren't going well. And yet in public, people in the government kept telling the American people things were, were moving forward, we were making progress. And, you know, that's a pretty damning comment, but we hear it time and time and time again in these interviews.
5: If you, if you go back and you look at the mission statement for every battalion and every brigade from the beginning of the war, they essentially are all the same. You know, it's, you know, defeat and destroy the enemy, protect the population. So they all went in, Every, you know, whatever their rotation was for a year, nine months, six months, whatever their rotation was, they all went in and they, and they were given that mission, they accepted that mission, they executed that mission. And then they all said when they left, they accomplished that mission. Every single commander, not one commander is going to leave Afghanistan or Iraq or any place, not one is going to leave and go, you know what? We didn't accomplish our mission. Okay, so if the next guy that shows up finds it screwed up that, wow, man, we just we did our right seat ride. We had a great right seat ride. We did our week long, you know, did our high fives. We're now in there. They do their mission analysis once they get on the ground and then they come back and they go, man, this is really bad. But yet the last battalion and the last regiment that you just replaced. They said they accomplished their mission. They got all these wonderful stats about what they did. But the next guy that shows up, and I'm telling you, this is from 2002 until today. Okay? So somewhere along our, our system, and this includes the State Department, ambassadors, you know, local, down at, the, uh, you know, down at the local level, everybody did a great job. We're all doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing such a great job, why why does it feel like we've, we're losing?
1: So we've talked in a lot of depth about two of these interviews with Ryan Crocker and with Michael Flynn. But there are many more interviews than just these two, right?
0: That's right. So the Lessons Learned program had interviewed... Uh, over 600 people who were involved in the war. The Post was able to obtain more than 400 of them under the Freedom of Information Act. So we have a pretty good body of work. I mean, 400 interviews of people involved in the war, you get a, a real variety of voices and people who were involved in the beginning back in 2001 up till people who were there as recently as 2018. And there's really nothing that we know of like that where so many people were interviewed about their experiences in the war. And that's really the the power, I think, of these notes and interviews, is you can really get a synthesis about many different issues, many different lessons, many different mistakes and failures in the war, and the patterns really come out.
1: And in addition to some of the things that we've talked about, like corruption or the way that, that what was happening on the ground was kind of spun in terms of how it was communicated back here— what were some of the other themes that came up in some of the other interviews that you've reviewed?
0: Yeah, so some of the other major themes running through these interviews. Off the top, one was that the strategy was incoherent, both through the Bush administration and Obama administration. We didn't know who the enemy was. People involved in the war said we didn't know why, who we were fighting or why. Another running theme, a big problem, is the failure to develop Afghan security forces, a national army or police That's capable of defending the country. And lastly, a big theme running through the documents is the problem of opium production in Afghanistan, which has skyrocketed since we invaded. And the U.S. has never figured out a policy or an approach that's effective in curtailing opium production.
1: So have any of these interviews or reports seen the light of day before us publishing it now?
0: The interview documents themselves, the transcripts, the notes, this is the first time that they've seen the light of the day. What has happened in some of the public reports, the lessons learned reports that Cigar has published, they quote people selectively here and there. But the quotations that we uncovered in the interviews about you know these plaintive frustrations, why are we there, this war made no sense, this was a mistake, none of those quotations, none of that criticism surfaced in any of the public reports the inspector general did. They kept all that material under wraps.
1: So I'm curious, the fact that you spent three years basically fighting to get access to these documents, have you gone back and asked the folks who originally came up with this project and brought together these interviews what they think about the fact that now they are being brought to light?
0: Yes. So I won't lie to you. It's been enormously frustrating that it took three years. I mean, that's three years of war, billions of more dollars, many more people dying. And yet we were unable until now to bring to light a lot of these criticisms, severe criticisms from people inside the government who are fighting the war and Actually, I did just recently go back and interview the special inspector general himself, a gentleman named John Sopko. Let's
3: see what my office looks like now.
0: And I did ask him those questions. I said, you know, your job, your job as an inspector general is to hold the government accountable. You're an independent agency that reports to Congress. But why, I still don't understand why your office, which is supposed to hold people accountable in yeah. Afghanistan, right? That's your whole mission. Why, wouldn't it, why would it sit on this stuff?
3: We didn't sit on it. I mean, before we, we, we came up with a list of issues that people told us to look at, this was not high on the priority when we finally got our program up and running.
0: But you have senior officials, four-star generals, ambassadors, senior White House officials telling your staff on the record— We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have a strategy. If there is a definition of mission creep, it's Afghanistan.
3: I think a lot of that comes out in the Lessons Learned report. It's a theme in probably every audit and every report we issue.
1: So did you ask the inspector general why it is that the reports that they put out were pretty watered down and that they essentially didn't put in or didn't publicize some of the most— egregious and some of the most important parts of what they learned?
0: I did. I wanted to know. I read off a number of quotations from people that were interviewed by his staff. If I just read some of the ones I... a few excerpts that I was shocked at, I mean, there was, we didn't know what we were doing. What were we trying to do here? We didn't have... As to the first question, did we know what we were doing? I think the answer is no. I tried to get someone to define for me what winning meant, even before I went over, and nobody could. You know, and I could keep going through... More and more of these. But to me, it's pretty astounding. These are the people in charge of the war, essentially saying it was a disaster, and they knew it. But I don't see any of these comments in your Lessons Learned reports. Why, and, why didn't you include those? And,
3: and, and that is sort of the limitation of where we go. See, as an Inspector General, I don't do policy. What all you quoted were people talking about a bad policy. We shouldn't have been there or we shouldn't have expanded. And that's the limitation where I'm talking about. As an inspector general, I do process. You tell me what the policy is, you being the government, the Congress, the president. This is a program. This is our policy. We're in Afghanistan to kick the Taliban out or the terrorists out and to develop a government that will keep them out. I, as an IG, don't
0: question the policy. Oh, come on. I mean, I read you have no. a whole report on corruption, on narcotics. Yeah, exactly. That's all... It's all policy. Process. It's no, process. No, 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 no. You, well, you, you, and I don't see you as the kind of guy who shies away from stuff. No, when you I, see things I, I really process.
3: don't. And if, if you look at my testimony and the testimony of NEIG, we don't do the policy. You tell us what the policy is, we do the process. We can raise questions. You're not going to make that policy objective. If you don't do so the following things. So why
0: did your staff interview all these people I just quoted? That's the whole fundamental reason questioning why the right. United States is there. How could you let that drop?
3: When well, we didn't let it drop. I mean, the stuff is available. We're still producing these reports. We had to so. sue you
0: twice to get our hands on it. What You did what? We had to sue your office twice under FOIA to get our hands on these documents. Well... You can't say they're out there. I don't want to go
3: into the, the the lawsuit that's still pending, but I think you did get a lot of the documents, if not majority, ninety percent of them. So I think we we're firm believers in openness and transparency, but we got to follow the law.
0: Frankly, this agency, the Inspector General, I I think they bit off more than they could chew. I think they did go in with the idea of trying to learn mistakes from the war. of it, you have to remember the timing. When they started this project in 2014, everybody thought the war was coming to an end. That didn't happen. And this office was supposed to go out of business. There wasn't supposed to be a war anymore. But the war has kept going. So suddenly, rather than have it just look into the past, this is very much a present-day problem. Why why are we still there? Why are we in the war? And that raises all sorts of sensitive issues for people still in government. You didn't think you'd still be doing... Lessons Lessons learned five years later. Is that
3: right? No, you're absolutely correct. I I didn't think we would still be doing it. I think there was a need to do it. And uh, because I I believe what Allen and Crocker and what everybody else, all the the smart people in town, told us is that this is what the future is gonna look like. The next time we do this, whatever the country is, you name the hot spot. It's going to be in a country where there's a problem of rule of law. It's going to be a country that's facing an active insurgency, maybe a lot of terrorist activity. It's going to have a corruption problem. It's probably going to have a narcotics problem. All of the problems we've identified, they said this is the future. So somebody should try to learn the lessons from that.
1: So... If the original concept of conducting all of these incredibly honest interviews was to make something that was essentially lessons learned, the fact that they haven't been made public, the fact that there has been a huge fight to get them out into the world for people to be able to read and understand what's in them, do you feel like lessons are actually being learned? No, I think—
0: This is an illustration of why they weren't, and that's why we're still there in Afghanistan with no clear plan for getting out, although the Trump administration is trying to negotiate a peace deal with the Taliban. But from the war objectives, those lessons are apparent what the problems were. But in terms of learning a lesson and how to avoid them in the future and come up with a new strategy, or especially if we ever get involved in another war, uh, I think those lessons still have not been learned. People are aware of the problems in Congress, in the, the government, but there, again, there has never really been a public reckoning about it. There hasn't been a public conversation. There hasn't been a public accounting of what went wrong and why, and certainly not to hold individual officials uh, responsible for any of that.
1: Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter for The Post. This episode was produced by Ted Muldoon. What you've just heard is a fraction of The Post reporting on the Afghanistan papers. Craig's new book comes out next week. We'll have links to more of that reporting and excerpts from the book in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rina Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Ray Smith. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Sfornosky are associate producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. And our intern is Corey Suzuki. Today is Corey's last day at The Post. Corey, we love you. You're amazing. Thank you so much, and we will miss you. Good luck. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.